0: We are back, we'll listen a little bit more of that Jake Shambakura song a little later on, wrapping up the show. I'm Janine, you're listening to Get the Funk Out. Standing by to kick off the second half of the show is Jennifer Hirsch, Dr. Jennifer Hirsch, Professor and Deputy Chair for Doctoral Studies, Department of Socio Medical Sciences in the Mailman School of Public Health and Co-Director and at Columbia Population Research Center, and Seamus Kahn. He's an American sociologist, and he's also a professor at Columbia University. They're joining us right now to talk about their book, very powerful book, Sexual Citizens, A Landmark Study of Sex, Power, and Assault on Campus. Good morning to both of you. Hi, good morning. Hi, do I have both of you?
1: Yes, good morning. This is Seamus.
0: Hi. Thank you so much for calling in. I was so fascinated by this book when I heard about it. Let's start off with you, Jennifer. Tell me about you know, how this book came about.
2: So about five years ago, as I was observing the national conversation on campus sexual assault, it seemed to me like there was a piece missing. There was a lot of talk about adjudication, about what to do afterwards, the so he said, she said, mm-hmm. um, you know, campus processes. And there was sort of an imagination of campus is a hunting ground of sociopathic perpetrators, but there was really no attention to prevention. I spent my whole career in public health, and I thought, if we understood the social roots of this problem, we could do a better job at preventing campus sexual assault. Sure. Now,
0: Seamus, how did you connect with Jennifer on this to write this?
1: So, actually, it's a Jennifer and I are a bit of an arranged marriage. Jennifer was um, looking to find someone on campus who... Complemented her interests in public health and gender, and um, uh, she went to the dean of the social sciences, a woman named Alondra Nelson, and. Um, I had said to Alondra, "Would you be interested in this project?" And Alondra kind of said, "I'm totally overbooked, but you need to meet Seamus." Um, and right. I've done work before on gender, but um, really a lot of my research complements Jennifer. We're both ethnographers, which mean we spend time talking to people and observing them in their day to day lives. And I had done ethnographic work on educational institutions with young people before, and so we became a kind of team together. We first met actually over the course of this project.
0: Now, was this primarily a a qualitative research project, or was it a blend of quantitative and qualitative, or how did it come about?
2: The work that we present in Sexual Citizens uh, draws on the uh, qualitative or ethnographic research, so we spent time, we had a team that spent time with Uh, Students, sort of as they went about their daily lives, um, Seamus and I didn't do that because we're too old and plus it would be creepy to see your (laughs) professor at a party. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're not that old, but it's, you know, 4 a.m. I'm fast asleep. No. Um, We interviewed 151 students. Uh, We interviewed students in focus groups. um, But all of that work was nested within a much larger project, the Sexual Health Initiative to Foster Transformation, which I co-directed with Claude Ann Mellons, which included two forms of survey research, the ethnography, and also really substantial community engagement portion, um, which involved a group of undergraduates that met with us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. throughout the course of the research to provide us with advice, because they're really the experts on their lives, as well as a group of administrators.
0: You know, that's really incredible. You're telling me they're up you know, late at these parties, and they're meeting with you at 8 a.m. I mean, props to them for wanting to participate. They must have felt there was tremendous value in this.
1: Yeah, you know, I think um, one of the things that we found when we were speaking with young people is how much they really wanted their voices to be heard and Mm -hmm. that they wanted the administration and communities more broadly to understand what their lives were like. Um, You know, one of the main findings of the book is just how much silence there is around sex and sexuality among younger people today. And, you know, Jennifer and I had really prepared for... The interviews to be things that were really difficult for the young people, but a lot of them, you know, they would walk into our office and um, tell us these incredible stories, um, often very difficult stories. And at the end, they would sort of say, "You know, it's nice that somebody listened, and I want you to tell my story." Um, wow. And we yeah. were just really kind of almost overwhelmed by um, the degree to which the people really opened their lives to us.
0: You know what? I, I, you're telling me this, Seamus, and I'm thinking it does sound like they needed someone to connect with because they didn't feel safe, they didn't feel comfortable sharing what was going on with them.
2: Well, I think that, you know, a lot of students, and this is something that we explain in the book, students have good reasons for not necessarily wanting to make a formal report when um, they've experienced an assault. And I think it's important to step back and acknowledge just how common it is. So, you know, by the time they are gra- they graduate, um, uh, one out of every six uh, men we found in, our, uh, in the survey mm-hmm. and one out of three women have experienced some form of unwanted non-consensual sexual contact. So there is a lot of suffering, and students don't necessarily want to um, set in motion a whole adjudication process, but they do want to feel heard. They want their suffering recognized, and they want changes made. Um, if you think about an iceberg, the, the maybe 5% of assaults that are reported to the administration, um, which we found in our survey, but also ma- other research has found on many campuses, represent sort of the tip of the iceberg. And in Sexual Citizens, we take the readers beneath the waters to map out the whole iceberg. Mm-hmm.
0: So Jennifer, um, I was reading that the book focuses on three big themes, sexual cin- citizenship, which you just mentioned, sexual projects, and sexual geographies. Um, what is it you would like people to take away from this book in the, about those aspects?
2: We would, sexual citizenship points to uh, people's, not just young people's, but all people's right to choose the sexual experiences they, that they have or mm-hmm. don't have and other people having that same right. And so we want people to take away from the book the idea that we can't address campus sexual assault without recognizing young people's sexual citizenship, without recognizing that they have a right to say yes and to say no to sex. Yes.
0: Now, Seamus, I have a question for you. For people, you know, in the LGBTQ community, what would you like them to take away from this book?
1: So one of the things that we found in the survey, um, um, but that's consistent with what many surveys before have found is that people in the LGBTQ community are particularly at risk of, um, experiencing assault. Some of the highest rates of assault are within that community. And, you know, a lot of the approach that Jennifer and I take in this book is to say, you know, that's, that that this is a consequence of how we've organized our broader society. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, the, we spoke to one young man, uh, his name is Adam, in the book. When we In the book, we change people's um, uh, names to protect their identities. And he told us how he grew up in a fairly conservative household in the Midwest. His was very, you know, not very open to his sexuality. And he was so excited to have met a boyfriend. Um, and sort of, he imagined that here in New York City, you know, there was just so much hooking up in uh gay culture and he didn't want anything to do with it and that really though exposed him to a lot of risk because his deep commitment to having a boyfriend meant that as he described it to us when his boyfriend came home one night and was very forceful about sex and in in his own words basically raped me oh. um he tolerated that and part of the reason that he tolerated that was because he was so scared about what it would mean to be a single person again, and the relationship was so valuable to him. Mm-hmm. Now, part of the way that we think about that is that the tenuous position that a lot of LGBTQ students are in, um, without having families that support them, without feeling like they're they're accepted broadly in society, leads them to undertake a range of actions that, that put them at risk for experiencing assault.
0: That's incredible. I mean, it's... It's such a powerful message. I just want to mention, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Jennifer Hirsch and Seamus Kahn about their book, Sexual Citizens, A Landmark Study of Sex, Power, and Assault on Campus. Seamus, just to end on that note, what would you like people to know who are in that community uh, that is in this book that would really relate to them?
1: So Jennifer and I wrote this book from a perspective of empathy and hope. And, you know, as we've, we've been traveling around the country talking to uh, uh, lots of audiences about the book, mm-hmm. and where so much of the conversation about sexual assault is based in fear, um, you know, and we institute fear in how everyone needs to be afraid of assault or that there's a lot of fear about sex. We want people to pick up this book and, we hope, feel seen. And by that, we mean that they're not alone, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, that the kinds of experiences that they've had, other people have too, and that there's a way to actually help this problem. And so, you know, we'd love for that community to pick up this book and say, there are things that can happen in society that we can do to make sexual assault less likely to happen, that there are prevention strategies. And one of them is comprehensive sex ed.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Jennifer, what would you like parents to know? You know, let's say you have a a student graduating high school this year. What would you you tell them?
2: I would tell them to buy the book and read it along with their child and discuss the case studies. I think that that, uh, perhaps our biggest message in the book is that the failure to prevent campus sexual assault is because we've only held campuses responsible and really everybody is responsible for prevention and that includes parents. So parents need to acknowledge their children's emerging sexual citizenship and support it. That means making sure that they have access to whatever kind of sexual reproductive health care they need. It also means not shaming them for being sexual people. Um, If you shame your kid for being a sexual person, then when they get in a jam, they're not going to turn to you for help. And in so many of the stories that we tell in the book, young people turn to their parents and particularly to their mothers. We see that mothers um, do a lot of the emotional labor uh, related to um, holding their children through really painful moments. And so I guess another message that we have for readers is that it's time for dads to step up.
0: Yeah no I, I can relate to that sentiment, um, not that my husband doesn't step up but but I am definitely emotionally tied and connected with my with my daughters you know now are there misconceptions about you know youth today that they're sex crazed because i'm what I'm reading from your book is that they're actually not
1: no I mean um, national studies show that um, young people today are actually having less sex than their parents' generation. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions that we need to address. One of them is that that the vast majority of assaults are committed by sociopathic predators. You know, one of the young people that we talked to in the book, we call him Austin, um, told us these really you know, beautiful and touching stories about his commitment to his girlfriend and, you know, the summers that they spent together living in New York City. And, you know, he was very attentive to her needs and to her sexual pleasure. And, you know, it's sort of, um, it's, it's... to us, one of the more beautiful moments in the book. Uh, But we also tell a story about Austin where early in his freshman year, he found himself in bed with a woman. He'd been sort of shuttled into her room in the way that in college, people get moved from room to room at night as their um, uh, uh, roommates have girlfriends sleeping over, etc. And while he was in bed with this woman, he ended up touching her body. Um, And he stopped himself. uh, But he still did it. And, you know, we need to think about why it is that someone like Austin is capable both of committing an assault in the way that he did, but also capable of being a very attentive and loving partner. And you know, a big point of the book is to kind of pull back the curtain on college life and to show young people as their whole selves, um, capable of both really beautiful things and also mm-hmm. capable of harming one another, and um, that both of those things are simultaneously possible.
0: Gosh, you're, but this is such a powerful book. You know, I'm just taking in everything you're saying. One of the things I wanted to touch on, too, uh, maybe, Jennifer, you'll address this, is, you know, men have these experiences of being sexually assaulted, and it's often ignored.
2: I think it's it's ignored. So, yes, men do have these experiences. We heard um, from a young man who uh, met a girl in a bar. She bought him drinks over the course of the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, he got really drunk, uh, they went back to one of their rooms together. He had no memory of what happened and then, when he asked his friends the next day, they were like, "Well, what was the problem? You were going to have sex, and you didn 't even have to pay, even have to pay for your drinks mm-hmm. and then He experienced it as an assault, but for so many people, they um come at sex with a narrative of men always want sex, and it 's women 's job to be the blockers and so When a woman assaults a man, they literally do not even have the language to recognize that as an assault because um, the women read men's physiological response to being touched as consent when in fact it's not. Uh, So for those young people, we need to help them develop a more critical consciousness around gender and sex so they can think about what they're doing instead of assuming that men are always down for sex.
0: Now, your research presented in this book, Sexual Citizens, is actually part of a larger project, the Sexual Health Initiative to Foster Transformation, SHIFT. How did you, we'll start with you, Seamus, how did you get involved in that?
1: Well, SHIFT was really Jennifer's idea. Um, And so, you know, she had this vision of our capacity to do better um, with understanding sexual assault and um, also our capacity to sort of help change the conversation. So, um, as she said at the very beginning, so much of the conversation about sexual assault is how do we make sense of these he-said, she-said moments, and what do we do after they happen? And, you know, this was really a study to think about how do we prevent these things from happening in the first place, and how do we engage with a broad community to help us on that path, you know? And so Jennifer convened be a team of, there were eight senior researchers, over 30 people were working on this project to try and look at um, almost every aspect that we could. So there were multiple different studies. We were talking with hundreds of students, hanging out with them in fraternity basements and in sororities and religious spaces and dorm rooms, and that's really what Sexual Citizens is based upon. And this different kind of approach, this public health approach, thought about the problem relative to systems rather than individual bad actors. So as an example, you know, if we think about how it is that we've made so much progress on drunk driving you know part of the progress has been saying don't get drunk and get behind the wheel of a car but that's not the only thing we've done we've also created you know the 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 moral value of a position of a designated driver We've redesigned roads in ways that make driving safer. We've stepped up policing on particular nights when things are dangerous. We've transformed cars to be safer with seatbelts and insisting on people um, uh, 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 wearing them. You know, we provide all kinds of education about driving. This is a really multi-level response where we look at how space is used, how we train people, how we make sure that we police people in appropriate ways, how we use the power of moral persuasion. And we need to do something like that with assault. Right now, we basically say, don't rape anybody, don't get raped, don't let your friends get raped, and that's insufficient. And what this large project did was to try and look at multiple levels and to take a systematic, systemic approach to preventing sexual assault.
2: Uh, Jennifer, did you want to add to that? Um, no, I think the only thing I would add is that Columbia was really extraordinary in supporting the research. I know that we Fantastic. have colleagues across the country who've done, tried to do research on sexual assault at their own universities and not gotten a ton of administrative support. And we got um, really substantial financial support directly from the university and also um, all kinds of other help uh, while we maintain complete scientific independent. So it was sort of, as a researcher for us, it was it was the perfect setup. And so we're very grateful to Columbia for um, seeing this as an opportunity to lead on these issues.
0: I know. I feel like this is a model for, you know, the standard what should be happening at
2: other schools. Agree. You know?
0: What else would you like people to know about the book, Jennifer?
2: Um, so I think the idea of sexual projects uh, opens the question of what sex is for. When we uh, spoke with young people about what sex is for. A lot of them couldn't answer that question, and that's because no, no, no adult, no person they respected had ever really sat down with them and said, you know, sex is going to be potentially an important, joyful, pleasurable part of your life that connects you to people you care about. And so let's think about that. Let's talk about that. And so young people, when we raise them in an environment of shame, we make them more vulnerable both to being sexually assaulted or even to assaulting other people. So I think it's it's up to us as adults to help young people figure out what sex is for so they don't have to um, figure it out on their own. Right, because I so think that's, back... that's a key takeaway in the book.
0: I was going to say, I think back to going to college, and, I mean, I never worried, like, if I put my drink down, someone's going to put something in it. It's, it's a totally different story at schools now.
1: Well, I think, you know, um, there... The thing that's important to know is that most people are assaulted by somebody they know, mm-hmm. um, by someone that they've had some previous contact with, that's enmeshed in their community. Um, that the sort of stranger lurking in the bushes or dropping something in somebody's drink. It's not that those things never happen, but they're very rare, and um, those are going to be much more difficult to prevent. Um, uh, It's not that we can do nothing, but there's a lot that we can do to change the assaults that are the most common. Um, And one of the take-homes of the book as well is to think about power. Power you know, so much of the account of sexual assault going back years is about gender and power, about how um, uh, the power that um, often men wield um, through uh, uh, institutions and their systematic advantage is important. But Jennifer and I point to the multiple forms of power that exist on campus and how those are very important for understanding assault. So, for example, we spoke to, I think it was uh, 16 or 18 black women over the course of the study and every single one of them told us a story about unwanted sexualized touching. And it bears repeating every single one of them. And, you know, a lot of them sort of explain this to us or talk about this in ways that were almost banal, which is not to say that it didn't affect them, but that we can't make sense of what's happening with sexual assault without also understanding the multiple forms of inequality that exist in our society and on our campuses and how that puts people at risk. So in the case of these black women, the sort of systematic disrespect of their bodily autonomy um, uh, is essential for understanding why it is that so many people felt comfortable touching them in ways um, that they didn't consent to.
0: Jennifer, let me ask you this. I actually have it for both of you, but you, you're doing this research, and I know things come up during the research. Were you shocked and surprised or, or not really by, by the, what was coming out of people's mouths?
2: I mean, one thing that was very troubling was hearing stories from students where they thought they were having sex, but they were actually assaulting someone. So one young man told us a story um, that began, "I put on a tie, so I knew I was yeah. going to have sex." And then he he told the story of this evening where it didn't it really genuinely didn't seem listening to him like he intentionally set out to assault someone, but he was invited to a sorority formal. He wasn't super into the girl, but it was a really prestigious sorority. Um, he wasn't drinking because he was a, a varsity athlete and his team was in season. She drank really heavily. Um, and at the end of the evening, he described, and this is horrifying, but in his words, yeah. having sex with her as she went in and out of consciousness. And so that's Horrible. clearly an assault. Of course. And yet he recounted it feeling aggrieved as if he, this is something that he felt obligated to do as her date for the evening. Um, So I think, that that, again, that goes back to conversations that we need to be having with young people to help them get clearer about what sex is for, that sex is not something that you do as an obligation for someone. So that was clearly a preventable assault. You could hear the story and think, he's a terrible person, but we want people to hear that story and think, what have we failed to do that that meant that that assault happened?
0: Sure. Anything else you would like the listeners to know about the book? and then where can they find out more about you?
1: So I will not want people to leave this conversation not with a sense of, oh, my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to, you know, send the young people in my life off to college, but instead with a sense that, like, we can do this. Um, and there are concrete steps that we all can take to address this issue. Um, for parents and communities, it means opening up conversations about sex, um, for legislators, it means um, passing a comprehensive sexuality education uh, for young people. In part of the survey research that was led by, um, uh, this particular paper was led by John Centelli, uh, uh, we found that um, for women who had had comprehensive sex ed in, um, in high school that included learning uh, how to refuse sex that they didn't want to have, those women were half as likely to be raped in college. And uh. that bears repeating, half as likely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, are, there is widespread bipartisan support for comprehensive sexuality education in schools, but so many young people aren't getting it. And we are putting them at tremendous risk um, uh, by not providing that for them. And so we, as communities, really need to step up and put pressure on um, uh, our state uh, and local representatives and start demanding this. To protect the young people in our communities and it's something that we can do and you know the the book provides a kind of blueprint for lots of small steps that we're going to need to take but that we have to take to try and address this problem
0: I have a question Uh, do you think either one of you that technology has played a role in you know in forming the viewpoints of today's college kids
1: so, you know, technology certainly has played a role in, in young people's experiences, but we found that, you know, um, the, that the the idea that technology is transforming everything is really, uh, it's a little bit overblown. You know, um, young people have widespread access to pornography, and one of the things that we could say is, oh, wow, you know, the, the use of pornography is a really a huge problem. But why are young people using pornography? I mean, yeah. some is that they're interested, but a lo- a lot of it is also that so many the way in which they're learning about sex is through porn in part because none of us are talking to them about it or we're talking to them about it in ways that aren't relevant for their lives so we're providing them with heavily um uh um, uh medicalized account of sex ed and it's important to learn you know what it is that fallopian tubes are but you don't actually need to know how spark plugs work to learn to drive, and you don't actually need to know, you know, the role of fallopian tubes and the ways in which eggs move from ovaries into the uterus in order to understand sex. And we need to have real conversations with young people about, as Jennifer said, people's sexual projects, that is what they want out of sex, Mm -hmm. about their right to say yes and to say no to sex and other people's equivalent rights, so that is their sexual citizenship, and the ways in which power is really important to the kinds of experiences that they're having. And those are conversations we need to open up. And whether or not technology has a role in that, we, 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 without doing that, we're not going to be able to prevent sexual assault. Yes.
0: So where can people find out more about you? Jennifer, we'll start with you.
2: Um, so the book is available wherever books are sold. Um, they can look at our website, sexualcitizens.com. Okay. Um, the book is published by W.W. W. Norton, and so it's available uh, through the Norton website, uh, Sexual, or they can follow us on Twitter. Okay. We're all over Twitter.
0: Um, individually by your names or by the book?
2: Yes, at Jennifer S. Hirsch okay. and at Seamus Kahn.
0: Fantastic. On Twitter. Thank you both so much for calling to the show. Such a powerful story. Incredible research. Um, just thank you so much for making time so to talk about this important issue. So important. Thank yeah,
1: you. thank you for lifting up these student stories and talking about our work.
0: Absolutely. All right, take care. Thanks so much again.
1: Thanks. Yeah, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. thank
0: you. That was Jennifer Hirsch, and that was Seamus Kahn. If you missed our conversation, it'll be up on the show blog, org. If you want to find out about being a guest, you can shoot me an email to Janine, dot org. I'll leave you with Jake Shimabukuro. This is Bohemian Rhapsody, and Sheldon Abbott is standing by with Cure of the Blues. Have a great Monday, everyone.